This is the Launch and Scale Podcast, the home of some of the best e-commerce advice on the internet today. Whether you're launching your first product or scaling your existing storefront, we include conversations from industry experts, best practices, and practical tips to help you run a profitable e-commerce brand online today. I'm your host, Kirsten, and my mission is to create 100 seven-figure brands by 2027. If you're going to be one of them, be sure to subscribe and not miss another episode. By the way, for more resources and information on how to work with us, go to launchandscale.co. Remember, that's .co, not .com. Apart from that, let's get into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I am so excited to spend our Friday afternoon with you live with one of my favorite humans on the planet, Lisa Myers from Series Chill. Uh, You may recognize Lisa from an earlier interview we did just after her crowdfunding campaign about three years ago, where she walked us through how she launched her product for new moms on Indiegogo and raised over $30,000 with 300 pre-orders and how it's called, well, link everything below. But today is kind of a part two where Lisa has made a massive transition from launching her business when she was a full-time partner lawyer at a law firm, raising two young kids, a husband overseas. And over the course of about two years, she grew her company from that $30,000 launch to one that is doing more than seven figures. She's now a full-time CEO and she has just raised, um, actually got oversubscribed on an equity crowdfunding raise. So these are just some of the things that I'm really excited to talk about today because Lisa is an absolute wealth of knowledge and she's one of my most talked about people. So we're doing this part two as a follow-up because a lot has happened in her life and her business over the last three years. So Lisa, I'm just so happy you're here. (laughs) Well, thanks, Kirsten. That's a lot to live up to. Um, being one of your most favorite people in the world, planet, universe. I mean, that's a lot. Um, and to say that I am a wealth of information, I think the um, reassuring thing to everyone who is um, watching or listening in the future is that I do not consider myself to be a wealth of knowledge. I am uh, barely getting by, surviving day to day, but uh, okay. you know that's what being an entrepreneur is. I certainly never consider myself an entrepreneur and I never consider myself an inventor. And I definitely don't think of myself as a CEO, but somehow here I am, all those things. And not a lawyer. I am what many lawyers like to call a recovering attorney. So I know, I know. Look at the smile on my face. Um, So. And I'm not even like the useful kind of attorney. Lots of times people get all excited and they're like, oh, I figured out how she did it. She was a lawyer. She was a corporate lawyer. She was a patent attorney. And I'm like, no, I was a trial lawyer. I was a prosecutor. I was then an insurance lawyer. It certainly paid the bills, but no, I was not the useful kind of lawyer, the the, um, highly sought after kind in your industry and um, the crowd you run with. So yeah, Um, but no longer a lawyer. And we can go on a nice tangent about that, but I love recovering lawyer. Um, so for those that are just uh, kind of watching for the first time, they're not familiar with what Series Chill is. Um, can you just give a brief introduction for that? People are not familiar with what Series Chill is. You've What's not been wrong with this job. world. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I've got all this clutter in the back. Like everybody puts up like a really great tropical background now. Everybody's got so smooth with like the blurred out background. I'm like, this is what it is. I have my kids' artwork of my um of my trademark in the back, and then I have some of the bottles, and I have like random bits of packaging because I still sell a send out orders to um, influencers and um, professionals in the space. But right. so Series Chill is a um, breast milk chilling thermos. It replaces all of the god awful coolers, um, plastic plastic single use plastic, which is terrible plastic bags, and then plastic bottles. Um, and I mean, you can kind of see it. I could like demonstrate it, but I think that might be boring to everybody and they can go watch the videos on YouTube or the website, but it's a two chamber system. And I just got my patent, uh, approved, uh, two weeks ago, October 4th. So I know, right. Because I don't know if you read all of my blog posts and all of the important stuff, Kirsten, but yes. so I, I, I'm going to challenge you and everybody who listens, how many, what percentage of patents do you think are issued to women or women only teams between 2000, 1978, I think 2018, what percentage? I feel like it's 0.4 or something. It's 4%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm 10X off, but 4%. Still like. Such a minority. And when I saw that serious chip, because I, I got your email about that, that you got a patent for it. Like just congratulations. It's really, really cool. Thanks. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think a bit of, well, a lot of why you have these podcasts is to help other entrepreneurs and people who are thinking of doing something similar, whether it's in this space or the home goods or something. I can't give advice to anybody who's developing an app, that's for sure. But a hard product, um, I think the key is to talk about your idea and put it out there in the world. And a lot of times people don't feel comfortable doing that because they um, are scared somebody's going to steal it, right? Like it's a really good idea. It's innovative. And they're like, oh, if I breathe the word to you know anyone other than my mother, they're going to take it. They're going to take it. And so- um, I think the key is to protect your idea to the best of your ability. So I filed my own provisional patent. And again, I can't say enough times for everybody who's listening and thinking of taking legal advice to, from me, I am not a lawyer anymore. And I sure as heck am not a patent lawyer, but you know, people No. So I filed my provisional patent by myself by going onto the USPTO website mm-hmm which the United States Patent and Trademark website is one of, I used to work in government. I was in politics like way before I was a lawyer and government can be very confusing, horribly yeah. inefficient and, um, and just confusing, just, just challenging, right? Like lots and lots of steps and fees. And I have to say the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is one of the coolest, most efficient, easy to access, easy to understand agencies in government, I would say, I would almost say worldwide. Yeah. They, they have really cool videos. They walk you through it. And so to file a provisional patent, a utility patent um, is like 250 bucks. And as long as you, you know, do a little bit of research, Google stuff, look at a few examples of provisional patents that you can probably find online. 
I found my own. If anybody is super curious and wants a really good laugh, they should go to the website, <laughs> seriesschill.com, and go to the blog. And you can see my adorable drawing of the chiller. I can't draw a straight line to save my life. I mean, it is so cute. It is, I mean, my daughter's like version, my my six-year-old daughter's version of my trademark behind me oh is a far better representation of my trademark than my drawing of what the chiller was going to be. But here I am sitting with you and I have a patent. So the point of that long TED talk was um, you have to put your idea out there. You have to start talking with people, um, getting support, getting other ideas um, and making it real. Like nothing mm -hmm. is, you and I both did like landmark forum, which is like a whole other thing. But unless you're, you're living it and you're talking about it, it's not really real. It's just something that floats through your brain every once in a while um, yeah. sleep. So um, yeah. So getting a provisional patent or protecting your, your mark or your design um, and then speaking about it, I think is critical. Huge. One thing I see people getting tripped up on is new founders. Um, they go to file a full patent right away with no market traction or proof that, and it ends up just kind of sitting in a wasteland of, dead ideas. So I usually recommend that people start with the provisional. And then if you want to pursue it, you go patent level. But at what point did you know that you wanted to go past the provisional? Well, you don't have much choice. So, so the provisional, I don't know why you would skip that stage. And again, I am not a patent attorney. I am not offering Neither am I. Not legal advice. Um, but you get protection for a year. I think you get the protection you need for that year. Um, you need to be careful about whether or not you need other international patents. Like once you start putting stuff out in the marketplace, mm -hmm. if you haven't looked at other international um, avenues as well, it can be problematic. So yeah, I don't know why you would skip the provisional stage because like I said, it's about 250 bucks. It gets you protection for a year. You can say provisional. Um, there's probably really good legal reasons that I just don't know. But um, yeah, being able to test the market. And that's probably why the law was written that way. Um, I haven't done a lot of research on it. But being able to test the market, perfect your design, and then decide, and then raise the money for a real patent attorney. Yeah. Because, um, I did have real qualified attorneys file the actual um, grown-up patents for me yeah. and they did the really hard work and you have to have engineering drawings um, if you have a hard product like mine yeah. and so yeah I think design patents I think people miss out on design patents a lot they aren't as they're perceived as being less than and they're not as easy to they're not as robust right they don't give yeah. you as many rights but if you start selling, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but if you start selling your, your, whatever it is, your item, your product, your, um, amazing print, and you have not protected it once it's out there in the market, I think it's really hard to impossible to go back. So, um, getting your, doing some research on your own, locking in what IP you can maybe having a consultation with uh, um intellectual property attorney that's you know willing to speak with you without um bankrupting you uh and then moving forward i think that that's key because testing the market that's a lot of the coaching that you provide and that was huge for me so i didn't decide to go forward with the 
Patton, it happened to me. The calendar, the year ran out. Um, I knew it was worthwhile and my choices were abandon it or move forward. And I wasn't going to abandon it. I'd invested so much and it seemed like a good idea. Yeah. Like it almost seems like a stupid question, but there is that point where you have to decide, am I sinking the money into doing this full time? Am I committed? You know? So one question now that you've hindsight, when we first started working together, it was because you wanted to crowdfund series chill. And because of the nature of your product, um, it being a product for moms that can use it within a short window of like zero to 12 months. And because you were going to take about three months to do, um, like manufacture your first run at that point, it was like, it was kind of a dicey if we thought Indiegogo's audience would be a good fit for your campaign. But you went ahead, did it anyway, and you were successful. Um, I'm curious, like in hindsight, would you do another crowdfunding campaign for product in your space? That is such a great question. Um, I don't know the, um, the, it just in these like couple of short years. So I haven't been around that long. Um, but the field has changed so much and, I feel like there's so many great entry points to um, to to moving forward with like a, a Weebly or a Shopify site and just like jumping right in and um, seeing how it goes. I think before, and, and I mean, I know that people also just exclusively sell on Amazon, but that's like a whole other challenge. Um, yeah. But I, it, it's been, see, this is the thing. I mean, and maybe this is like TMI for everybody who's watching, but like it's, I am in a really phenomenal place. Like I am sitting here talking with you in my dark little office, but my, you know, like I can pay all my bills and I quit my job as an attorney and I can help moms all over the world. And, um, you know, this year we'll do over 3 million and the, the business is only, you know, just, just about three years old. I, I wouldn't change a thing. Right. It's like my parents got divorced when I was little and people are like, ah, oh. and you know, like all kinds of stuff happens to, you know, men and women in society. And it's like, you know, so, you know, what would you change about your life? And it's like, well, if I love where I'm sitting right now, like would I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, yeah. cause it would change where I'm sitting right now. So, yeah. um, I, that's a really horrible answer for all of your subscribers, but so I chose not to do Kickstarter because Kickstarter was just so huge and such a monster for me because I was mm -hmm. so small, it felt like. And it seemed like it was still really tech, um, like dude-driven. Yeah. Um, I went with Indiegogo because I wanted to also have a uh, charitable component to it. I had a lot of men, male colleagues that I knew would want to invest and support what I was doing. And they're going to be like, what do I do with a breast milk chiller? I, I would say, I don't know. But I had a, um, I, I created a partnership with mom to mom Global and Breastfeeding and Combat Boots, like really, really incredible um, joint organization that supports um, military service members and their families all over the world. And so, I mean, there were lots of people who said, I don't need a breast milk chiller, but I love what you're doing. It seems important for society and who doesn't 
support the spouse or service member who's out there, you know, protecting yeah. the country from all the bad guys or whatever. So yeah, so I I went with Indiegogo and I'm really happy with that choice. And I really appreciated your coaching through that. But it was a lot to get ready and none of that was wasted, like the yeah. video and the market research and building the community. But for a parenting product that is so short-lived, it sometimes takes months to create the um, community and email and you know contact base to have like a solid start. Yeah. And by the time I was you know able to launch and I had the right people, those those women were done breastfeeding. I mean, their kids were wandering around like having conversations with people, like you know. So it's tricky when you have a parenting product. I think that's the real challenge for something like mine. And also. Yeah. I hate to be gossipy, but like the with Park and Diamond, like there's just been a few disasters on those platforms. And I think people are getting a bit turned off and there is much more of a main street appeal. If you start your little Shopify and, you know, you, you reach out to your community that way. So it's tough. It was a long answer. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's good. Um, so the great thing about parent products is that there's such a big market and people constantly make kids, right? So there's like never a shortage of customers, but when you focus on the breastfeeding space, which is such a short lifespan, um, how has that affected, like, cause you don't have like a subscription product where I can just buy collagen month over month and stay with you for four years. Like you have a product where someone can buy maybe a one and done starter kit for the first kid. And that's kind of it. They may come back a second time for a gift, but like, have, has that affected your sales or your strategy or your approach, knowing that your lifetime value of a customer may not be that long for you? So I think that people it can get really hung up on that. And if you let yourself be limited, no knock on you, Kirsten, I know you're just asking the question, but if you let yourself get hung up on that thinking, then you may never start. Um, and for me, we have, we have a, um, 4% conversion rate on the site and which is pretty terrific, especially given the fact that a lot of parents take a few looks before they decide whether or not they need something. And we have a 9% return rate, which is huge for this awesome. space. And it's a lot of women. So I am in a lot of parenting groups on Facebook and we have amazing influencer partners who are a huge part of our marketing and just the overall community that we're trying to build. And, um, yeah, by tapping into those networks, we're realizing that lots of our customers are buying them as gifts. They're realizing they could really use two. We market it as like a warmer, chiller duo. So finding ways that your product can be more versatile. So people buy one, but then they're like, oh, I can use the other one as a baby bottle warmer. I didn't realize that. Like, so you chill your breast milk with one and you warm the bottle with the other. And then, you know, once you have the community and you're getting inspired by your customers and by the space you're existing in, well, then you just invent more cool stuff. So I have several other add-on products um, 
that complement the chiller and also function entirely independently. So I got a call from a hospital the other day that wanted to, um, well, a lactation consultant that runs their lactation division for yeah. that hospital. And she was calling to talk with me about, you know, whether or not we have a wholesale pro program and if they could order from us. And so I started talking to her about the chiller and then partway through, I'm like, oh, I should talk to her about the, the nipple shield. And so I'm telling her about that. And she's like, wow, I had not heard about the chiller. That's amazing. And like, for me, like that's our flagship product. Like I didn't even realize. And she was calling because one of her patients had come in and spoken to her about the nipple shield, which is wow. a smaller product, but yeah, that she had no idea about anything else that I was selling or the main products, the, the real revenue generators right now. So yeah, so it's just been, um, I think if you're listening to your customers and you're doing your job as like a trusted advisor in that space, they will buy more than one from you, even if it's sustainable, they see the value and, um, and maybe you'll create some more products that are useful to them as well. I remember a hack, not a hack, something cool you did early on. Um, right after your campaign, you were planning out new accessories to pair with Series Chill. And you're like, I have so many ideas, but I don't know what to do. So you asked your customers to vote out of like 11 to 14 product ideas. I'm curious what your method now is for product development and getting feedback from your customers to implement. Like, is it post-it notes? Do you have a more formal system? Like, how do you keep track of that? It's funny. I don't remember doing that. If you say so, Kirsten. <laughs> I believe we recorded it somewhere. Yes. <laughs> I think the thing that really, really scared you was when I launched my Indiegogo page before I launched my Indiegogo campaign. And you're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's so, so smart. And it was. <laughs> yeah. But just like, I'm like, okay, well, you need the emails. You're like, I, I, you know what? We're going we're gonna to talk about that because Lisa has uh, proven me wrong so many times. And that's a, a whole other conversation. She'll get into that. But I would love to know it. Because like you, it's so funny because someone who's just starting doesn't know the feedback they're going to get in the future. But then the business owner who now has four or five products and they're getting, you know, customer questions, they're getting uh, three-star reviews, they're getting requests from customers, how to like start to keep track of that. And I'm curious just with you, how is it just that you pay attention to the feedback that comes back and you just know in your brain to prioritize certain things or do you have more of a system? No, I wish I had a system. I wish I had like a cool spreadsheet I could share with everyone. No, I, I think it's honestly just listening to people and just, um, I think if you start out doing something like this, you already have the brain that's equipped to, um, to kind of keep track of it and adapt. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, it was just always moms are like, how do I clean my pump parts on the go? Like, it's just so hard. It's just such a challenge. Like, what do I do? And I'm like, gosh, that is a real, that is a real problem. Like, I don't know. And then I thought, you know, there must be like some sort of like cool bag or wash basin or something that I could source and maybe help. And then I looked and I'm like, there's nothing that's weird. Like, and these are, you know, like flight attendants and, you know, like truck drivers and women who clearly have a need, even women just traveling, like, you know, through an airport, it's like, you look at those 
bathroom sinks and you're like, I really don't think cleaning my pump parts or my baby's like bottles is appropriate right now, but yet what are your choices? So I think it's just as long as I think when people try to just white label stuff um, and just put stuff, literally put, I'm not going to say the other S word, but just put stuff out there. Um, you are, you have a much more uphill battle because you're not innovating, innovating, and you're not as in tune to what's going on. I mean, the wash basin is not my greatest innovation, but it helps women and parents in a way that they can't find any other place in the market. It's, it's not brilliant. I haven't patented it. Um, but it's, it's a collection of things that are helpful in one place that can really serve them. So I think when you're living it and you have that experience and you're hearing what people are saying, even if they're not just leaving you a three-star review or they're like screaming, I need something to clean my stuff. They're just like, you just over and over you hear, wow, this chiller is so great. It's just so hard. Like, you know, going through airports, like trying to, you know, keep everything sanitary. You hear that enough times and you think, gosh, that is hard. Like what, what could we do differently? So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, yeah, system, it's just listening and then thinking about the world you exist in and what is available, looking for it. And if it's there, then you don't have to do anything, just help them out and direct them there or, or, be a good member of the community and wholesale it and support that other brand, like not ripping people off and being supportive of your customer and your colleagues in the space, I think will always serve you well. I think that's a really good lesson because what it's more the thought pattern of customer says, big problem and you say, oh, that would actually be a big problem. Let's try to find a solution for it. And just having, you are paid to solve your customers' problems. So when you start to see feedback, good and bad feedback as an opportunity to help them, good opportunity to improve their life, you might actually uncover your next product idea. Yeah. Your next product, et cetera. So um, I'm curious with your growth, you few months after crowdfunding, you went on to Amazon. You've mentioned influencer a few times. I'm curious, in the, say, three years, you've gone from zero to three mil. What would you say is probably the biggest driver of your revenue in the last three years? So I didn't go straight to Amazon. I waited a couple of years. Amazon is a challenge. Okay. Yeah. I no. say <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No, that's, I would not recommend that for anyone. But I mean, I think there are people out there who've done it very successfully. I would not, I don't have the stomach for it and I'm pretty tough. It's, it's, you have to, and I have seen so many brands and companies that have tried to compete with me and rip me off, go on Amazon and fall off. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it takes staying power and you have to really nurture that, customer relationship in a way that Amazon, um, trying to protect them prevents it's hard and you don't have a base that you can go to for, you know, sales. Yeah. You have no control over your customer's information or that, or that communication. It's, it's a challenge. So don't recommend that, but 
some people do it really successfully. I'm curious why, because that's another big question we get, which is when should I start on Amazon? Why did you wait a couple of years to go full force into it? Well, I still, I mean, no, not to Amazon. I hope they're not listening or if they're listening, they're flattered. Um, I would still not be on Amazon if I had a choice. So um, I like to help my customers. Amazon by necessity makes that really hard for large and small businesses. Large businesses can just muscle their way through it. And you just, you just, I mean, a lot of customers feel that they speak to the, um, to the distributor or the manufacturer by, um, registering really, really horrible reviews, which is impossible. They're impossible to remove. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding about the product. Sometimes it was an issue with shipping that you had no control over. Um, and so that's, that's hard. That's painful, but I am on Amazon because you're not a real product, particularly in the U S and particularly for moms, unless you're on Amazon and you have reviews. And so, I mean, I needed that. I think it's something crazy. Um, like, 83% of every buying experience in North America starts with Amazon. It doesn't end with Amazon, but you go to Amazon to see, is this a legit product? And what do people say? Like, and, and you may not purchase there. You may go to their site. You may look for a better deal, but you start not with Google, not with Yahoo, not with Bing. You start with Amazon. Um, So yeah, so they're just, they're just a, a monster in all the good and bad ways. They're huge. And you need, you, for me, I need to be there to be successful and have a solid reach and, um, and credibility. Uh, I started on Weebly, um, which mm-hmm. is a very accessible um, format. And then I ended up going to Shopify because they have more like plugins and add-ons, but it starts to become a little bit I keep talking about monsters. It's terrible. A bit of a Frankenstein because you're constantly like, like adding things on to a very simple, like you've got a stick figure and then you start like trying to Barbie doll it up and it gets overwhelming. Um, Yeah. Good point. Because it's so customizable that you're like, well, I need the checkout pop in and then, well, I need the currency converter, but then I I also need all these things. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to put videos and yeah, everything. So, um, so we went from Indiegogo successful Indiegogo campaign to Weebly. And then after about a year, maybe a year and a half to Shopify, we're still on Shopify. And after about another year on Shopify, we were on Amazon and now I do about 60% of my business. I do about I do about, now I do about 55% on Shopify, about 10% wholesale and the rest Amazon just kind of is a little bit flex. Are you doing FBA or FBM? Both, both. Um, Just because we haven't been able to stay in inventory, stay with enough inventory to be able to get enough into um, fulfillment by Amazon. So we control some of it on our own, but yeah, I mean, ideally we'll have Amazon fulfilling a lot more as soon as possible. Which makes sense. So I want to go back to an earlier question. I think we got sidelined with the Amazon thing where in the last three years, where would you attribute, say, most of your sales growth from if that's 
if it's ads, if it's a Facebook group, if it's like, what would you say that is for you? Well, it's hard. It's hard to say, right? Like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like you, in the beginning, you have to start with ads, really. I mean, in the beginning, you have no money. So you start by um, like Facebook groups and reaching out to people and studying the market and trying to develop lists. But you're really, I think, dependent on ads, or at least I was during that era, which was, again, only three and a half years ago, yeah. but um, things change fast. So you're de really dependent on ads. Then once you start getting out there, if you have a valuable product, then you have um, influencers. And if you're doing it right, the influencers are happy to help you because they want cool content. They want to help their community. And if you have an affiliate program, they, they want to continue to fund what they're doing so they can continue to live their life yeah. support their family, and support their community. So you don't have to spend, I think spending thousands of dollars on posts is not the right thing. I think creating genuine relationships with people who have genuine communities and they're trying to put out real authentic content. If you have a relationship with them, like you introduce yourself, you send them product, you um, get their feedback. You don't tell them they're stupid for criticizing your product or whatever. You yeah. have some sort of engagement with them. Then they're happy to post about your product. And then they see they generate revenue and that when you do well, they do well, then that just is um, self-fulfilling. So yeah, um, keeps it just keeps going. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you just you're you're both looking after each other. I mean, I guess you could look at it in like a really sick way, like you're paying them and they're paying them, but it's really like I'm really happy to support what they're doing. Yeah. And we're really happy to hear from their community that what like some cool gadget they told them about has changed their life and allowed them to meet their parenting and goals in a way they never dreamed. I mean, that's like, I think that's really great. That's the best yeah. possible way the system could work. It is. And when it comes down to influencers, um, how do you find your, is it just your team doing direct outreach? My team. You're so funny. Well, you <laughs> have Louie and other mm -hmm. people. So I have, so in the beginning for the first two years, it was pretty much just me. Mm -hmm. um, now Louie helps me um, mostly though with, um, and he's just the coolest guy in the world. He's the best, but um, he's overseas and he is like so attuned to what our customers need and he's so sympathetic and he knows and understands the product so well. Everybody's like this, this gay guy like has the answer to all of my problems i'm like of course he does he is like the most intelligent sympathetic human being i've ever met yeah so louis great but and then alana helps with social media but no so the company's growing and we're finding all the people we need but um i don't have a whole team of people looking That's for right. answers okay mostly early on i was looking for people. And I mean, Instagram is constantly showing you people. I mean, the, the, the platforms want you to find the people. They are 
pushing people um, yes. in your face, up your nose, whatever you want to say, they are right there. And yes. so it, the tricky part is just looking at the engagement, their type of content, what is it that they want to talk about, not just spamming people or reaching out to people who aren't interested in promoting products. Some people yeah. are just like, I want to talk about what it's like to be on the beach with my baby and how to like successfully be on the beach with my baby and keep us all alive. Like, like that's, she's mine. Yeah, well, that's no, I mean, the thing is, is like, they may want a chiller, but they don't want to talk about a chiller. That's not mm -hmm. their content. That's not, they're like talking about like surfing and stuff and, and raising babies in that sort of a community. So anyway, I digress. So finding like if you got to do real research and get into their page and see what their community is like and what their engagement is like and whether or not they want to actually promote products um and if it would be meaningful for you to reach out to them and a good investment to send them product and yeah. then um yeah and then keep the relationship going and they're really busy and I don't know that you talk about this a lot but particularly in my space, they're not just busy being influencers. They're busy trying to keep small people alive and their marriages intact and whatever else. And so um, reaching out to somebody more than once, I think if you're doing it the right way, is not a bad thing. It's staying front of mind and giving them another opportunity. And for me, you know, there's a few people who blew me off a couple of years ago or who are having babies again. I'm like, hey. I see that you're uh, having a baby, like how cool. Like, I know I reached out to you before, maybe it didn't really seem like it would make sense, but if you're interested now, I'd be happy to send you something. Um, so yeah. I think staying in contact, knowing those, I don't know, knowing those people well enough to know whether or not it makes sense for them, because it has to make sense for them. It's not about you, it's about them. Yeah, and um, there's a, several Facebook groups, but I have a friend here in Toronto who just gave birth to her first kid 10 months ago now. And I'm very used to my Canadian friends having never heard of any of the products I've ever worked with because they're overseas in America, et cetera. And so I was telling her, I was like, yeah, well, we actually launched a product for breastfeeding moms. You should check it out. It's called Series Chill. She's like, I have to oh. interrupt that you were telling her about it and you hadn't bought it for her already, Kirsten. Like you hadn't reached out to me. You hadn't said, do you have a discount code? Like I am really upset about where the story is going. But anyway, continue. Yes. <laughs> so in the future, I'll crawl out from under my rock and be like, Lisa. But I got it. Good, good. There's a, there's a good story to this. But yes, I am sorry. Next time, next time. Um, but I was like, yeah, there's this product. Like, it might really help you. She's like, oh, I've heard so many amazing things about Series Chill. I'm in this Facebook group with moms, and they won't shut up about it. And I was like, holy crap, you have heard of this product. <laughs> I love this. And uh, so in this Facebook group, I ask about Facebook groups because you have mentioned Facebook groups to me in the past. I am curious, how do you infiltrate Facebook groups and get all the moms talking about your product? So it has to happen organically. I know you've like, you've, I know that part of like what you were helping us with like early, early on way back when is like getting into these Facebook groups. It's really, really hard. Really and they're hard. very, very skeptical. 
I knew I had arrived and I was officially successful and famous when there was a Facebook group dedicated to Series Chill. What? It's not yours? So Facebook. No, it's not mine. I didn't make it. Oh I was like, I was like searching Facebook and it's fa- it's Series Chill and Baby's Brew. Um, and so it's another brand. Both are hard to get because we sell out all the time. Series Chill sells out all the time. So it's... yeah. Mom, but I, what I love, and this is no knock on baby's group, everybody ends up asking series chill questions. And it's like, it's really the series chill group, I got to say, because I got into the group. And now what's cool is like, I'm like their honorary member. And for the most part, everybody knows I'm the founder of series chill and I answer their questions, but it's the way I can figure out problems with the product. Like I see the questions that are coming up and then I can tell them about sales and but resale of series shell Kirsten, this is the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. It's like buying a Mini Cooper or a Jeep. You drive it off mm-hmm. the lot, and it's still worth tons of money. My series chill bottles are reselling in that group for five dollars under retail value. A used breast milk chiller. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think that's like because it had human milk in it it would be like significantly discounted no i'm that cool and my product is that amazing i mean i'm that cool but yeah no it's and this is the thing now you're now you're gonna reach out to me for the discount codes you can buy a bunch up and then sell them in the facebook group aren't you actually can you send me one because i have shelf okay this was rearranged today for a photo shoot I have a shelf of products that we've worked with and you are not on the shelf. I would love that. And your signature hoodie thing that you showed me earlier oh, so yeah. that I can rep your brand. Please. Okay. All right. Because nice. we'll talk about that I later. love that you um, put books on the shelf. I did not do that for you. I put mascara on, um, but no, I did not pretend I was smart by putting books behind me. No, you're fine. I mean, not it's that you're pretending. Good. I didn't mean it to sound that way. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I'm illiterate. They're just for show. No, I'm uh, one thing I want to dig into. Um, there was something you and I have had an ongoing battle since the day we started working together. Oh. And I'm so happy to say that I was so wrong. And I want to talk about work life balance as an entrepreneur. So, oh, yeah. Kirsten, yeah. Sweet. So, ongoing <laughs> battle right up until you didn't message me to tell me that you quit your job. Um, oh, I, I, in hindsight, was wrong. Um, I was pushing my views on her, and luckily, she did not listen to me. For years, I was like, Lisa, you are now a successful business owner. You don't sleep. It's now time to retire. She's like, in March. It will be March. (laughs) And then in, in like April next year, just three more months. And so for two years, it was just quit your job. You're killing yourself. Like, so Lisa is my rebuttal whenever someone comes to me and says, I don't have time to start a business. I don't have time to dedicate five hours a week to my side hustle. I'm like, well, there's this person who did full-time lawyer, two young kids, husband in the military, startup, successful company. And so I would love to, A, I was wrong. I'm so glad you held on to your job because it funded everything that you've been able to do. But for parents that really struggle to get that balance and they really want to break out of the nine to five and start their own thing because you've got some practice with this now and don't just say don't sleep 
I would love to talk to you about this because I think you have just, a, you're just a little bit better at managing time and the everything you had juggling while still prioritizing series chill. So I'd love to dig into that because so many business owners are in that really weird position where they're, they're doing the moonlighting and at some point they are going to be ready to quit, but they don't know what that point is. So um, are you cool talking about that transition yeah. for you and when you knew it was time? Um, I did when? not know when it was time. I did not know when it was time. And I, um, similar to the patent experience, you're like, so when did you know you needed to, I'm like, when the time ran out. Um, yeah. I, the day, so the lead, the weeks leading up to me retiring. So I was an equity partner at an international firm, a really I mean, what's nice is that I went out on top. Like I, um, I put myself up for partner. I fully expected them not to make me partner. Kirsten, I told Kirsten that Kirsten's like, they're going to make you partner. And I'm like, <laughs> no, they never do. Especially not for women. Like they, they tell you the first time to go jump in the lake, like maybe the second time, but I'm not putting myself up a second time. And so they made me partner and I was the managing partner for our Vancouver, Canada office. And yeah. I live in Seattle. And my husband, as you said, is active duty military. He was deployed to Iraq for the year um, during the pandemic when I was homeschooling my daughter through, well, not homeschooling, but, you know, pandemic schooling my daughter yeah. through Spanish immersion at the public school and potty training my son. And you better believe I put that in my um, partner memo because I'm like, none of you dudes can claim this. Like I am for sure saying it and you can decide not to make me partner because of all these little um, you know, anchors about my neck, but I am doing it anyway. So um, I, re I, I finally, I, it was that I, it was too much. I, there was just a point where I thought I'm doing everything horribly. Um, mm -hmm. And I still was doing really, I was doing, I think I know great work for my clients. I prioritize those cases. I was, I was quite successful and um, I cared about that work. And I, you know, I think like a lot of us, like you, you're driven to be successful and you have no other choice. So um, this is a really long answer, but I, there was just a point where I knew I could not do anything good anymore. I couldn't, there was a, like, I could always sacrifice myself, right? Which I did and you yeah. were not okay with, but I was successful anyway. Um, but I could always sacrifice myself, but there was a point where sacrificing me still, there was no more left to be a good mom, a proper CEO and an attorney. There yeah. was, there was nothing left. And so then it, and you know what I have to say, this is, this is what I'll really say. This is the real answer. During the pandemic, people died, not of, not of COVID necessarily, but I think we all became a little more attuned to mortality, which was that great fall off in, you know, the great exodus of so many um, professionals. And I looked at it and I was like, so I could keep doing this. Like I could, I could, I could skate for a couple of years at the firm. I could half-ass series chill. I could not parent my kids i could potentially ruin my marriage and definitely impact my health but for what 
Like, you know, in that time, I just thought about, it. I'm like, God, I could die in a couple months. Who knows of what? Something really terrible could happen to someone I love dearly, whether it's a parent or a child or my spouse. And I would look back and think I had a chance to do it right. And instead I did it all wrong. Like I blew that opportunity to really figure out how to live. And I definitely don't have it figured out. I still am horribly, um, not horribly. I am still really um, in it and overwhelmed all day. Um, But I have a little bit more time and space to think and function. And I definitely don't feel like I'm doing everything poorly anymore. I am being a great CEO and I see the opportunities I'm missing and I'm being a good mom and I wish I could do more, but I'm not doing it all bad. I still don't sleep and it's fine, Kirsten. It's totally fine. (laughs) We'll start go back to that. But in the conversations before you finally quit, um, you were like, I'm just going to wait because year end stuff. I'm just going to wait because the oh, year end stuff, huge amounts of money here. Okay. I, buckets of money that helped okay. me survive <laughs> annual bonus that you're like, I'll just wait. Right. But was there something below that, below the surface that like, were you terrified of quitting and making the jump? Not terrified. Um, I'm I'm a firstborn child and I'm an insurance lawyer. Um, And so when I say buckets of money, let's please just be real. I was not making hundreds of thousands of dollars and certainly not in um, bonus, but it was enough to help me pay like bills for engineers to like create the, the, I just don't want people who are listening to think, oh, well, F it. She was, she was a fancy lawyer. She had hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like that's not for me. That was not me. I, there was a time where our washer quit. And I could not afford a new washer. And I was like taking my daughter to the laundromat, trying to carry my daughter and the bags of laundry into the laundromat. And I was just like, what am I doing? Which is so many people struggle. Like it yeah. is, I was able to afford the quarters to wash the clothes and I was able to afford food and the heat when it was cold and dark. So I am not complaining, but I'm just saying, I am, I am no fancy pants that had buckets and buckets of money at the end of the year. I needed that money to keep the business going. But what was your question again? I'm (laughs) question was like, because my theory, why I think I kept pushing you to, are you sure? Is because I thought it was just, it was letting go of that security blanket. Well, security blanket for sure. I, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, I was the health benefits and I was what kept the lights on and paid the mortgage for my family. And I think a lot of dads feel that, but especially, and I, maybe I'm totally wrong, but for moms who have been bringing home the bacon and making it work and responsible for all the bills, I would say it's, it's tenfold. Like I knew what childcare cost. I knew what the mortgage was. I knew my daughter had ha- suddenly had seizures, like randomly when she was four years old. And so I couldn't sleep, which helped me t- you know, deliver on a lot of stuff for the business because I was just awake watching the baby monitor and then, you know, planning my world takeover for series chill. But, um, no, it wasn't a security blanket in the sense, like I needed to be a lawyer and I didn't know how to not be a lawyer. It was, 
and I'm going to use foul language that you can edit out here, but I wasn't going to fuck my family. I think a lot of entrepreneurs get their back up against the wall. They're, they're backed into a corner and they have nothing and they have risked it all, including their family's future food on the table. And I'm like, there is a way to do this without, there is a way to risk like calculated risk and to make things happen without being desperate. And I'm like, I will not be desperate. I'm not going to, I am not going to take out a loan against the house to fund the engineering bill for the bottle. There is another way I can, you know, and not everybody has the benefit of good credit, but I can do a 0% interest card and I can like move the balance around and I can like pay as I go and I can not buy my coffee in the morning. And I can, you know, I can make small sacrifices that add up to the money that I need each month to see the project forward without like putting my family at risk. I never ever will mortgage my house for the company and it's a good company, but I'm like, if I'm doing it right, I don't have to do that. And that was why I stayed on as a lawyer for as long as I did. I stayed on as long as I knew I could serve my clients and not die. And then there was a point where it was like, okay, I'm all, I'm all out. There's nothing left. Like I got to file for my patent. There's not another single day. So just keep going. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, oh, sorry. I get distracted by questions and I just saw a question come in. Here he has, uh, well, answer that in a second. Uh, my question was like, okay, so I understand because I was coming from it. For me, I went the opposite where eight years ago now, I worked for an amazing company and well-funded startup. It's like everything on paper would it was perfect, but I was just, I was dead inside because I can't work for someone else. So me with money in the bank, no plan, just up and quit my job. And that for me, helps me quickly figure out what I need to do because it's a, it's a thrive or die situation. Um, so Which I ended up is, like, I think that's where a lot of people in the space come from. I think a lot of people who look to finance entrepreneurs are like, Oh, you're still working your full-time job. You're not all in. And I'm like, Oh, I'm all in. And as a matter of fact, I don't need you like fine. So that's like one big, big thing that I've learned because like me going through this coaching other entrepreneurs, me growing my own company, like I, it's a personal development challenge with myself too, because I realized like for the first year I was just kind of, um, superimposing my beliefs on Lisa because I'm like, what was she waiting for? But I saw how much you were putting in. And I'm so happy to say that I was wrong because I think out of that is a, is a valuable lesson of when you're working 50 hours a week outside of the business and you have young kids, you are starting a company. Yes. In your case, it was by accident, but you saw a bigger vision that you fell in love with that, which is the whole reason you started to pursue this outside of it. But with a parent, new startup, full-time job, when you only had a certain amount of time to work on the business, what did you work on? Like, did you prioritize stuff? What did you prioritize? So I, I think it goes back. So I don't know if anybody out there is a rower um, or maybe like an athlete or, I mean, I know you're a triathlete. People used to ask me, so I was on the men's crew team um, and I loved it. It was, it was terrific, but 
people used to ask me, how did you do that in college? Like you were, you know, you were getting up at like 5 a.m. and you're, you know, you're going to class and everything else. And the answer is, and similar to being an entrepreneur is you just do it. There is no, I don't have an answer. I, I don't have a spreadsheet. I definitely didn't plan my time. I wasn't like, I wasn't one of these really highly effective people that's like, oh, no, from this time to this time, I would commit myself to allowing to scroll Instagram. And from this time to this time, I would like target influencers. You, I, I just, I wish I had a better answer. I think when you're trying to do it all, if you're really committed to it, you just do it. You figure out today I have to do payroll. Like today I have to pay all of the influencers so they understand I appreciate them and it's been too long. Yeah. You didn't do it three weeks ago when they should have been paid, but you are doing it today and they know you appreciate them and they get it and they yeah. weren't even necessarily expecting it then. Like you, you, you review your ads finally. And you're like, holy shit, those aren't effective. Like I should have been looking at this sooner, but the thing is you're looking at them now and you can fix yeah. it now. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, so but I love it because the answer is messy and that's life. But <laughs> were there things that you felt compelled to do more than others? Like you were back and forth with China. You were in the trenches with customer oh. service longer than you needed to. Like there were things that you just spent more time on because that's just where your brain said you needed to go. So what were those things that you ended up spending a bit more time on? Um, so I sp still spend a lot of time on customer service. I don't answer customer service, but I see everything. I see all of the texts that come in. I see all the emails that come in. I see the Amazon correspondence. And I also watch what happens with the warehouse. So I know when um, I know when things are happening and I can see the problems with the, um, the products in a way that nobody else can, which one day somebody will replace me because God knows I'm not the most qualified CEO for a multi-million dollar company. And I will be replaced by somebody much better. Right now, I'm the only, I, I've said it, I think, to you before, and I'll say it again, I'm the spider at the center of the web, right? Like, I, th there's many, many people involved, like customers and influencers and a couple people that are on my team, but I'm the only one that sees it all and sees everything that's, and I've gone to the warehouse and I fulfill the orders. And so I know what it's like to see the orders come in and be confused by how they look and how we do a better job of sending things out faster. So um, again, I got lost about your question. Um, how did you know what to spend your time on? Oh God. Is it it's reactive? So I got lost about your question. I um, Giving responsibility up to qualified people as quickly as possible is key. I don't have enough people right now. And so I know I am probably holding the company back, but that's changing. Mm -hmm. um, I think always having some contact with your customer and the product. I don't know how you could be successful without that. Um, so I don't think... I'll ever give that up until I turn this over to a, you know, a more qualified CEO who maybe knows how to do that more effectively, but always, always having an idea of what customers are saying and what their experience is 
And, um, and then what it's like to be getting the product out effectively. I think that's critical. So huge. Yeah. Yeah. So just a bit, I hear what, what you're saying. It's, uh, it's really actually refreshing to hear that you didn't have your system where every day at 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. you did influencer outreach and then tend to like have everything scheduled because it's a real reflection of what entrepreneurship is. It's messy. You figure out what works. You do more of that. You figure out what little things you shouldn't be doing and you outsource that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Riaz actually, so he is a product founder that is launching a cool product on Kickstarter in the new year. And he asked, what was your approach to product design and engineering? How did you find the right partner to build this out? I love this. I found multiple horrible engineers um, who uh, took my money, which I don't think they, I mean, they weren't stealing from me. They were doing legitimate work, but they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, I'm trying to remember how I found the first one, probably online research. Um, And I was just in a void and I had never done anything like this. And none of my friends had ever done anything like this. Um, They were out of the Bay area. I'm in Seattle. They were out of the Bay area. I'd gone to school there. They tried really hard and like epic fails, like just disasters. Um, And then they referred me to an engineering firm in Seattle. um, And they said they couldn't help me. And then I called, I cold called multiple engineering firms in Seattle, which I mean, we've got Amazon, we have a lot of tech and hard product industry here in Seattle. And still, so we have a few engineering firms and like some of them were very nice and diplomatic in um, telling me that I was small and pitiful and I should go away. And then I called a really cool um, design firm in a little, little cool spot in Seattle um, called Pioneer Square. They didn't answer. I left them voicemail. They didn't answer. They were on my way to my day job. And so I knocked on their door and I didn't get them. So I emailed them and it was like two people and just their website struck me. It seemed very personal. And they said, oh, geez, it sounds like you're past us, that you have a bit of a design but you need design for manufacturing, which I didn't even know that was a thing. So there's design (laughs) and then there's design for manufacturing. I'm like, isn't everybody designing for manufacturing, but that's a whole other skill set. And so with a product like mine, and so they recommended that I contact um, Bob Carrasca at Pillar Design in West Seattle and talk about an amazing Epic firm. Like I can't say enough great things about that team. And he is super cool. And it's a very sweet, small office, but it's a lot of, I had a lot of mansplaining. I quote threw away a lot of money, but you know, kind of similar to my answer earlier, you're not throwing any of it away if you're getting where you need to be. And, um, yeah, I learned a lot and they had great contacts overseas with manufacturers. They, um, you know, they, they, they listened. I think if you can find an engineer that seems to really listen and want to understand and hear you out about your customer and your priorities, then you're all set. Um, and, and if you don't get that from them and you just keep looking, eventually, if you're smart and you're determined, you'll find the right, the right partner and you'll get where you need to be. But yeah. And, and pillar design has 
excellent contacts overseas, which was a huge help to me when I move forward with the next stage of manufacturing. Yeah. Um, I would love to know what the process looks like a little bit more because when you took your squiggle of a patent pending drawing to a design firm and said, I want to build this thing, anytime that happens, no one has made this product before. So you are paying engineers to figure out how to mass produce a product like this in the specifications you want at the price point you want and, and all that. And so the design firms that we've worked with um, are usually at the stage where they know that they have designed the working prototype, but now it's like for several thousand dollars, they have a contract with you to design out multiple prototypes to then get you to the point where you're manufacturable. Um, when you started working with engineers early on, what were your agreements like? Because in the very beginning, they're just like tinkering to figure out the design before they even build anything. So like, what did that look like for you before you committed fully? I did not have several thousand dollars. So I'm not sure who you're talking to. <laughs> I would not have made it past that point. Um, I think it was like a few hundred dollars for a retainer. And then it's like a few hundred more dollars for the, the print 3d printed prototype. And then, um, you know, you, you end up into it for, you know, a few thousand dollars probably by the end. But if somebody would have told me I needed to get them 5,000 up front, I would have told them that I needed to get the quarters together to do my laundry and I didn't have it. So, um, yeah, I, um, yeah, I think it probably differs. It, it probably changes depending on where you're at and what sort of engineering is required. But Mine was like, I think probably like a $500 retainer. And then it's like, okay, we anticipate billing this many hours. You'll owe us $1,500 after six months. And we expect to provide you with a, you know, 3D, you know, printed version. Yeah. I don't know. It, I, I'd have to look back. It would be very fun to look back and think of all the ways that I pinched to, to pay those bills. But yeah, it's funny. Cause, um, I've been in the design firm trenches with uh, tech products where there is so much hardware circuitry, et cetera. So that runs the multiple, yeah. multiple thousands of dollars for design. So yeah, mine is not, I mean, hard products shouldn't be like that. No, not, I mean, just not hardware, like hard products, like a bottle behind me. Yeah. So moving forward, if someone were to ask, let's say I ask you and I'm, fresh, a newbie, have no experience online. And I have a really cool idea for a thing that I want to design. I'm like, Lisa, you designed a really cool product. Where should I start with finding a good engineering firm? What advice would you give to me? It's like, don't do what I did and do what I did because I ended up in the right place. Um, I think if you have any friends or or colleagues or professionals like you in the space, or even me, like I'm happy to speak with anybody who reaches out um, to the extent that I can, I'm not so fancy, but look at who has tried to do that thing before and then get their advice. And, and maybe they have really, really great advice and maybe they don't know where to start. I mean, today I just spoke to a woman who's from Alberta yeah. and she wants to design something really cool for breastfeeding moms and she has no idea where to start. And she was talking to me and it's, it's something to do with fabric. And I'm like, 
I am not your girl. And I don't even know, I don't know who you would talk to. I, but I know people who have done that before and I can introduce you to those people. I think, I think to try to go it on your own, similar to, you know, keeping your idea in complete isolation in your head is not the way to bring it into being. I think not reaching, not tapping your network and not, you know, listening to podcasts and, um, and being part of those communities. I think that that is a sure way for ideas and opportunities to die. So I didn't do it right, but I kept, I was like, I persevered and I kept talking to people and I kept asking friends and colleagues. And I finally found a really great, um, engineering firm and it all worked out. Yeah. I love that. Um, by the way, uh, I didn't actually, actually ask how much longer you have. Cause I could just talk to you for hours. Oh, I know. Right. We could go for hours and hours. I, I mean, probably at some point we're going to have to look after my kids and you're going to have to like get on with like all of your stuff too, but Friday night. But, um, so let's do like another few minutes, just give or take. There are some viewers watching. Um, if you are watching this live or even after, if you have a question for Lisa, she is a wealth of knowledge, even though she says she isn't, but drop any questions below because these are some of the best questions we get are from you. So, um, so Tyrion asks, what is the main channel you're acquiring customers? Is it Facebook ads? Uh, how, how is that compared to Instagram influencers, YouTube, TikTok? Like what is the main channel? Instagram influencers, but I think that's very specific to my, um, my space and my type of product moms trust moms. And I, I, I mean, I guess it's hard for me to say, so it's a lot of word of mouth. So when I was starting out, I would see, I would sell, a um, a chiller, a bottle in like Wichita, Kansas. And then I would see, I would sell like 10 more in the next couple of weeks. And so it's very, I'm lucky that I have a product that people really enjoy talking about and sharing about. So, um, <clears throat> something like Shopify, like the, the sites try to tell you where you get your sales from. And they say I have something like 96% organic sales and they don't credit anything to advertising. Yeah. I know that's not the case. I know people see the ads. They click on the ad, they look at the product. Wow, that's a little more than I thought. They go away and then a week later they Google it and they buy it. And so that counts as like an organic sale and not is not credited to the ads. So I think I, I've never tested it. So to um, to try to answer this, um, this amazing person's question, which is spot on, yeah. if I turned off ads, I would probably see an impact, but I wouldn't see it for weeks, right? Yeah. And then I would see it and I would freak out. <laughs> what happened? It's like a dip. And like, what am I going to do, right? And so um, so it's hard because I'm not sure. And, and it's probably hard for other businesses too. I don't know where to attribute the sales to. A lot of it is word of mouth. I know the more product I have out there, the better I do. So I like having sales. A lot of it is influencers because moms trust moms and hearing from a mom or a nurse or a lactation consultant is really meaningful, but ads definitely drive sales. And I'm 
as much as I would like to test this theory just for this particular um, question, I'm not going to turn my ads off today and update you three weeks later, but I think I'm sure it would have an impact. It's yeah. just hard to say. It's hard to like link it right back. Yeah. And there's a few things for those watching that are also not happy with the level of tracking that you can't properly do. Um, we are releasing an interview soon with Desiree Grimaldi on how to switch over to Google Analytics 4, which is going to help solve a lot of those attribution problems. Um, you said specifically Instagram influencers. Have you sent out a bunch of product to YouTubers, Instagram influencers, TikTok, and you see that it mostly comes from Instagram or did you just accidentally focus on Instagram? I don't accidentally do anything, Kirsten. <laughs> or just like, I just no, no, Instagram, just doubling in, right? I should say that I'm probably a bit old. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know as much about TikTok as I would like to. YouTube is a great platform. People learn a lot about the product here, but I don't know that's where all the moms are. I, I wish I had time or money or resources for a marketing person that could research it. Yeah. Um, Instagram just intuitively feels like where people are. And so far my intuition has not screwed me over. So, um, I, we focused on Instagram influencers, but we have an affiliate program that we, you know, advertise on our site and people can reach out and let us know about their mom group on Facebook or their TikTok page. And then we take a look and we're like, Oh, you're cool. But for the most part, I don't look at it and say, oh, you've only got a thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah. It's, wow, you're you're a, an IVCLC. You're an internationally accredited um, lactation consultant. You have meaningful relationships with a lot of moms that may not be on Instagram or maybe all thousand of your influencers listen to every word you say. It's totally yeah. worth it for me to spend whatever the product costs me and whatever shipping costs me to send it to you because yes. you're going to talk about it and share about it and maybe do classes where you feature it. So I always err on the side of sending product. It costs me very little overall when you think about how much ads cost um, or how much like, like really, in my opinion, gross um, uh, influencer costs are. To yeah. just send product and just be personal and say, I'd love for you to authentically share about this. If it seems like something that would help your community, gosh, that would be great if you'd let them know. Like, so yeah. So yeah. Um, Instagram just for me intuitively seems like the right place. It gets shared a lot on Facebook. I just don't even know anything about yeah, I'm so old. I'm so old. I feel like, I feel like um, Helen Mirren sometimes, like I'm like, huh. Or like Judy Dench, Judy Dench was like doing TikTok with her like nephew during COVID. Like I feel yeah. like Judy Dench. You know that over 30% of TikTok users are over 30. They're us. Yeah, I know. But I'm not having babies, Kirsten. I mean, that's the thing. It's okay. You don't, you don't have to be on TikTok yourself. That's what is great. Right. Um, but, I, but I'm just saying yeah. that's why I don't know a lot about it because it's just, that's it's, fine. I, you know what? We'll circle back next year and I'll tell you what the super young, awesome millennial marketing person that we hire has to say about all of it. I'm sure yeah. we'll be blowing up on TikTok. Stay tuned. 
Um, when it comes to uh, Cesarean, uh, actually, or Facewear has a great point. We've already touched on influencers a little bit and like outreach strategy, but what did they ask for? Do you ever pay influencers to like sponsor a post or do you typically just do uh, join our affiliate program and product? Yep, join our affiliate program um, product. And then um, I like to do like perks throughout the year. Like if there's something that makes sense is like a gift that's like related to mm. the product, like just to keep them as part of the community, but, um, and to keep the relationship, like, cause it's really a relationship, right? It shouldn't just be purely transactional. Yeah. I, what's nice is that I have a product where we don't pay for posts. And what I just say is, we're happy to send you a product. We would love to get your thoughts. Your feedback is really meaningful. Um, but we would love for you to share authentically and we don't pay. And so then I don't have to assess like, Ooh, you have 500,000 followers or you only have 2000 followers. I don't have to like weigh people's like worth and value in society based, based on, on numbers. Yeah. Followers they have or their engagement or whatever. It's like, Hey, if this makes sense for you and you think this would be valuable, do it. If not, and some people then send us their, you know, list of costs and that, which I appreciate. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to do business. And I just say, I, and I, I mean, honestly, I'm not joking, even though I've told you about how much we're making still, like if you're trying to be competitive, you're always out of money. I, I have no money to pay for influencers. And I can honestly say we have nothing in the budget for this. I really value what you do. I want yeah. to support you. Please be an affiliate. And I'm happy to boost your sales and give you credit whenever I can. But yeah. we don't pay for reels or posts or stories or, you know, break it down by 2,500, 750, whatever. And then yeah. you're trying to figure out if you got enough money out of it. It's exhausting. So with your um, cash flow, do you have a line of credit or are you bootstrapping and just putting everything right back in? Yeah. How do, you, how do you budget for that? Because the inventory orders get bigger every time. So like, so we're doing, we're doing our first raise right now. Um, and, um, I had thought it would bootstrap the whole thing, but there's just a point where you stifle growth, right? Like I've been out of stock every three months since I started. And that's just, um, not being responsible in the way you run your business. And so, um, yeah, I, um, so we're doing our first raise and we did a community round with WeFunder, um, and we were oversubscribed and we, reached out only to our, um, our customers, which yeah. I thought was really great and a neat way to go about things. And so, um, it's now closed and people can't invest. So I can safely tell you all, I am really proud to say that we raised over $600,000 in 15 days. Um, because, People believe in the product and they, um, they see the opportunity in the future. So very, very cool. Um, and yeah. yeah, but I have bootstrapped it for three years, but there is a point, um, and it's, you're going to ask me probably about timing again. And there's, mm -hmm. I, I'm either behind or I'm ahead or I'm right on time. And 
you know what, we'll know for sure, probably four years from now. Yeah. Um, so WeFunder is an equity crowdfunding platform, which allows you to raise funds in exchange for equity. At why did you decide to do an equity crowdfunding raise? Because I wanted to make sure that all the people that knew the product and deserved to benefit from the success of the company um, that were personally invested um, were financially invested and had an opportunity. There's it's the system is kind of rigged so that um, the rich get richer. And if you're rubbing elbows with the right people at a cocktail party, you can make tons of money. And um, I just wanted to try to do something different. And so I did. By giving your customers a chance of really buying in and helping um, benefit from the company they help create. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. If five or 10 years from now, a mom is sitting on a beach drinking wine out of her chiller because it's intended to be sustainable. And she has taken a dream vacation or sent the kid, is sending the kid off to college that she never thought she'd be able to breastfeed uh, because she invested in Series Chill. I mean, yeah. that's like really living, right? Like that's, yeah. that's success. That's awesome. And helping contribute to the startup that is quickly turning into an eight-figure company. <laughs> Crazy. I just, I think, okay, this is going to sound super creepy, but I sometimes think of you <laughs> late at night when I'm like, wow, the night when you're not I, sleeping, when you're yeah, not sleeping, I'm lying in bed and I'm like, wow, Lisa just, Sirius Jill just raised over half a million dollars in financing from her customers, no external marketing. And I remember all the sleepless nights, the tears, the, and I was just like, man, if she could see like two years ago, if you told her these things were happening, I wonder what she would say. And so that's my question. Like some things that the growth you've had with, it's just been nuts. So how do you, like two years ago, how do you think you'd react if you knew what was coming? The same way, the same way. Like, I mean, you don't know how to do it any different, right? I think the tricky thing is um, for everybody out there that's like struggling or successful is trying to be in those moments, right? And yeah. I think I probably do a horrible job of that. Um, I think I'm pretty grateful and uh, I'm very lucky, but it's it's hard to be, it's, failure really hurts and success is like, like it's, you know, it's the, it's like when I, so as a lawyer and all the lawyers or anybody that has to take an entrance, entrance exam probably can relate to you failing the bar exam would be devastating. I mean, you've gone to law school, you've worked so hard, you've done so much, there's so much money, like it's all on the line. Um, that would be devastating. Passing it is like, Moving on. I knew I could do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I had to do it. I did it. Like keep, it's not commensurate, like, right? Like the failure does not match the success. Like the, 
the revelation and the experience and the, the, um, yeah, just like being in it. And so I think that's the challenge for all of us, right. Is to be in the moment to, um, take the success as joyfully and with as much exuberance as we would take the, the trauma and devastation of failure and, um, you know, keep going. It's just, yeah. So I wouldn't, um, I, I wouldn't do anything differently. I wouldn't see it any differently. I wouldn't be capable of anything other than, you know, crying when there was terrible design failures and trying to figure out how to like put the money together to pay the next bill. Um, I mean, it would be nice <clears throat> to know it all works out and I don't, um, die at 44 <laughs> and my marriage and like, you know, alienate my children. Like, you know, it's just, it's all the stuff you worry about and all the stuff people tell you you're, you're stupid for, um, for risking, but yeah. So, um, I know it's been a long conversation. I, I, like, like you said, I could talk with you forever and I, don't know that anybody's going to endure this hour and 20 minutes. Oh, of- you would be surprised. <laughs> Joe Rogan, one of the top podcasters, has three-hour conversations. So hmm. I think if the content's good, and then people will stay. But it's up to me to know when to end that conversation. So okay. we've covered uh, everything that I wanted to. If anyone has a follow-up question for Lisa, or you just want to say thank you for her spending her Friday afternoon with us helping to share this valuable information, give her a big thank you below and like this video. Um, but I do have one final question, okay. which is, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh yeah. I like this question. I remember. Um, fave. Gosh, we've like spoken about so much. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that um, people who are considering whether or not they should like put themselves out there and risk it. I think that if you're, if you're smart about it and you connect with, um, with people who have experience in the space, you absolutely should. Um, I listening to your podcast and I was like driving to that court hearing that time um, on a recommendation of a friend who was selling on Amazon. Uh, it was really, it was a really, great, you know, I think I can legitimately say life-changing moment and you've had a huge impact on my life. And, um, yeah, I think creating a community around yourself and finding resources and then deciding what direction you're going to head in and not looking back with a lot of regrets, Mm. I think is, is, um, the key. I, yeah. I mean, a serious show would have failed. I'm sure it would be a different, um, I don't know. I'd, I'd be saying different things. I'm, I'm really, I'm really lucky to have met you and, uh, I kept going. And I think that there are a lot of people out there, the more I spend time in this space, there's a lot of people out there that don't move forward with their ideas and their dreams, their thoughts, their, um, the concept that might really have a a lasting impact on the world. Yeah. Because they do things like, oh no, I hit an engineering snag. That must mean I'm not meant to do this. Right. Stop versus have the perspective you do, which is I wasted so much money 
and hired so many of the wrong people, but it led me to the very thing that did the thing. Yeah. And so anyone who's watching this, as Lisa said, like you can just hear in her perspective, challenge, what's the solution? Solve. Challenge. Oh, let's just keep going. And it's really shitty in the process, but then, oh, there's a win. Great. Next challenge. And yeah. then eventually you start to build this thing that's actually making the impact that you want. And that's when it's all worth it. So. And it's tricky because it does take resources and I don't deny that. I just, um, there's a way, I think there's a way to work within almost anyone's resources. And I think if you reach out and you create community, you can find the expertise and the connections and sometimes the funds, they don't come to women and they don't come to, um, to minorities and, um, people of color the way they should. Um, and that's a huge, huge limitation that society is going to have to face. But, um, I mean, I, I raised that money from moms and I raised it because they trusted me because they understand the product. And so I'm a real, this will be the last thing I say. I'm a real lone wolf. I'm a, I'm a firstborn child. I'm very independent, aggressively independent. And the greatest joy and um, realization running this company has been um, tapping friends and networks and colleagues and people who really are happy to help me and contribute and be part of something like this. And I would have never thought that before. And I was happy to try to do it on my own, but um, a lot can be gained by uh, tapping into other people's expertise and realizing that you don't have all the answers and the resources you need to make something really cool happen. Yeah. I love that. And as you said, I, we could just go on. Like, I feel like we can go get a glass of wine right now and just like, I know, right? Friday. But there's a point of diminishing returns. And yep. obviously, we need you back on the show at some point in a couple of years when it's like, oh, three mil? Yeah, we've done this or oh, whatever. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I love hanging out with you. Um, and yeah, I guess guys, thank you again, uh, to Lisa and do give this video a big thumbs up. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit subscribe on your mobile device. And for more resources and information on how you can launch and scale your e-commerce business online, be sure to go to launchandscale.co. And we've also got a ton of free actionable content available on TikTok and YouTube. Just be sure to go to either platform, search for Kirsten, my name, K-H-I-E-R-S-T-Y-N. Apart from that, we'll see you in the next episode. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step -step through the process of launching and 
scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.